Welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, the podcast that supports you in finding and embodying your purpose. My name is Paulisari, and I am your host. In this episode, we talk about death as a key to uncovering our purpose or how awareness of our mortality can help us clarify what truly matters. My guest in this episode is Rob McNamara. Rob is an author, leadership coach and consultant, and he is an expert in adult development and human performance. He has a very long and impressive CV, but I'll just mention that he has taught adult development at Harvard University, and that he is a co-founder of the consulting firm Delta Developmental. He has written two excellent books, one on adult development called The Elegant Self, and another one on the intersection between strength training and spiritual practice called Strength to Awaken. He practices Zen with Diane Musho Hamilton, and he is an integral Zen Dharma holder. What makes Rob the perfect person for a conversation about death and purpose is that he has lived very close to death throughout his life, and you'll soon find out why. I also want to mention that Rob is married to Brooke McNamara, who was my guest in episode 2. So, here is my conversation with Rob McNamara. I hope you'll enjoy it. So, welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, I thought we would start by having a little look at your process of purpose discovery and embodiment. And, um, yeah, what I mean, it's very difficult to often to tease apart those two purpose discovery and purpose embodiment but if we um, I would like to focus first on how you came to understand your purpose like how did you what did the process of clarifying and discovering your purpose look like and if it's very difficult to um, do that separately from living your purpose and embodying your purpose it's of course you can speak about both together but yeah i would like to invite you to speak a little bit about how you discovered your purpose yeah well for me um this is something that started to become clarified when i was in middle school and my asthma became pretty uh pretty bad at that point in my life and um i uh i kind of started to wake up to my existential condition (laughs) and i likely was born with asthma and you know had been grappling with it my whole life so i didn't really know anything different but there is something about this particular period of my life where I um, started to be able to kind of reflect on myself and um, 
and my situation a little bit with greater fullness as I was gaining more interiority as a, as this budding, you know, little version of myself. But um, hmm. I was having pretty severe attacks, usually two to four times a week. And um, I needed to be on uh, my nebulizer pretty regularly. Uh, Certainly they got me through my attacks, that medicine and technology. Um, Without that, Mm. I'm not sure I would have made it through many of my my attacks. But going to sleep each night is where purpose started to become clarified because that would Mm. put me right up against um, my own mortality. Most of my asthma attacks, the most severe versions were at night. Um, During the day, I could track and you know, I'd have to be on my machine every few hours when things are really bad. But um, in waking consciousness, I can kind of track um, where my lungs are at. And, uh, my mother mm. at the time was constantly tracking <laughs> where my lungs at. So I was doing peak flows all the time. And uh, it was kind of an ongoing thing. Like, how's Rob's breathing? Um, but, it, you know, at night, you go to sleep and um, you don't have the ability to track your breathing when you're sleeping. <laughs> and so um, I, mm. you know, many times a week I'd wake up and there's just virtually no air in and out. And it would be kind of a, mm. a fierce grapple to stay alive. And um, and so that it's that context that purpose for me was revealed. And I uh, kind of formed a philosophy that at the time carried me and actually still largely carries me. But it was this very simple presupposition that if you make it through the night, you have one day. <laughs> And um, Mm. so while, at least from my perspective, my peers and my friends, I wasn't talking with them about this, but everybody kind of assumed life was a given. And I was kind Mm. of, you know, meandering around my pre-adolescent self, (laughs) wondering, Mm. you know, if this is it. And... um, Certainly, as adolescence like took hold, um, my my purpose uh, changed and clarified, and you know we can we can kind of trace some of it as I grow and develop in life. But this basic disposition that death reveals significance and purpose uh, is the organizing kind of pathway that that has taken me and um, 
I think it's interesting when we strip away the normal, the normative narratives around um, just life trajectories. <laughs> when we take those things away, um, we're left with much more intimate conversations about what matters to us um, innately, mm. as opposed to the extrinsics and the various motivating factors that the world kind of puts in front of you. Um, at least for, for me, my experience was, well, you know, if, uh, if today is it, um, I have to answer to myself and to reality in a much different way. So let me mm. pause there and see what, uh, what's of interest or what enlivens you, what kind of questions. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, I really, this perspective of, of death, um, it's such a, for you, it wasn't like a chosen practice. We were just given that opportunity um, to discover what's, what's most deeply meaningful. You were kind of forced into that. But for other people, it can be a practice <laughs> to, um, to contemplate death and contemplate what really is important if I would only have one year or two years left or a couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I just want to... Um, I mean, it certainly has been that way for me. I lived for a long time without much awareness of about death. No one around me had died and um, no one close to me at least. And uh, but then when I was you know, a couple, yeah, maybe five years ago or so, I, I had a the mother of a girlfriend who was dying and I got to experience that very, really close up and it really forced me to, yeah, confront my own death and in, in, in that process also what's really meaningful. Hmm. So. Yeah. Well, and this is the, at least from my perspective, um, to pick up and put down the inquiry of death as a as an exploration is a great starting point. <laughs> and mm. I would advocate that people um, do so. And um, it's important for us to train and practice, I think, um, with death if we're serious about purpose development. Um, because there's this odd paradox, at least in my opinion and experience, where the degree that I deny death is intimately interwoven with the degree that I distance myself from what is most meaningful for me. 
And mm. so the intellectual exercise of what if um, maybe you've got two years, as you said, or maybe it's a year, right? Um, that that invokes a proximity mm. of death that is um, clarifying for a lot of people. And when we start to bring it closer, maybe it's six months or maybe maybe it's a month. Mm. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's a day. You know, we can work with bringing death closer and closer and closer, which increases the intensity of the inquiry. Um, Mm. And this is uh, what I would recommend to people is to play with the proximity of death in such a way that it enlivens and clarifies you. And when you bring in this kind of intellectual exercise, when you bring death too close, it can disorganize you and dysregulate you. Mm. Um, and that's where you, okay, let's back it off and give me a little bit more time, a little bit more space and distance between me and death. Um, so people want to find kind of the proximity that works for them, that, that enlivens and clarifies them. Um, but this is kind of on the, the practice injunction that you get to pick up and put down. And that is always situated in a reality that um, none of us really have any choice in the matter of when and how death uh, touches our lives. Uh, yeah. Whether it's our own death or, you know, this might be our last time that we talk. I might be gone soon or you might mm. be gone soon, right? So now we're not just working yeah. on my own death, but others, to your point, this year, I believe you said your your girlfriend's mother. Um, yeah, that's right. And, you know, so uh, this is all to say that reality, that life itself appears to be uh, serving up endings in ways that we don't have any choice over. And um, sometimes those losses are more than we can handle. And um, there's something about being undone by life that uh, is essential. And then there's also something to be said about, well, we get undone by the things that we haven't trained for. <laughs> and, mm. you know, so how do we discover the parts of ourselves that can peer into the existential conditions that make us up um, with greater playfulness, sincerity, curiosity, courage, heart? things like that. Hmm. But it, at yeah, some point, it, go ahead, brother. Well, no, I just wanted to say that I know this while 
while I'm listening to you, I'm kind of reconnecting to, well, to my mortality and just reconnecting to that I may not have 40, 50 years left, but maybe just a year, who knows? And I'm just noticing what it does to me in this moment. I'm noticing I'm just, just gratitude is the first thing that, that happens for me. Great. Um, yeah, and just, yeah, just this tenderness and just, I'm softening and, um, um, yeah, and so much more appreciation for what is here in this moment. Yeah. But I interrupted you. <laughs> Where were you going? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, so that's um, the opening of gratitude. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a significant dimension. And um, to expand our ability to receive death, which is, in my opinion, not separate from life, and to have it reveal uh, gratitude is uh, very different than regret um, mm. or longing. Um, mm. And not that one's good and the other's bad, but um, the, this is what helps us in terms of revealing what ultimately matters to our hearts and our minds and our being. Um, so, you know, you, it, it appears that you're um, calibrating well, my friend. <laughs> You know, if you peer in and and you're full with gratitude and appreciation, and you can taste kind of the sweetness and the delight in what you're doing. Um, if you can feel greater love and appreciation for what is, like. Those are important kind of embodied experiential cues that say, hey, whatever the hell you're here to do, you're in some ways touching it. And that's very different than um, making contact with death and um, feeling a vacancy, uh, feeling a sense of uh, lost time. Mm. A sense of waste, um, which is always the other side of this, you know. <laughs> if we're really serious about kind of carving in deeper to our purpose, then how do we kind of turn our bellies and our hearts to feel the contours that are? entangled in the ways that we betray ourselves and we don't enact what we're mm. called to do yeah 
Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just um I can I've experienced both in relation to death, I think personally. Just if I look at this experience um that I mentioned earlier, um with my ex-girlfriend's mother dying, what in at that time I wasn't connecting to gratitude so much when I contemplated my own death in that context but I uh-huh. connected more to a yearning to live differently yeah um, um, to change things in my life um, that you know if I would have one year left I really need to do some things another way <laughs> um uh-huh. Yeah, so yeah, I didn't I hadn't thought really about how you can use death in that way to kind of measure your life temperature or like where where you are at the moment. Yeah. Well, you know, survey of ones is what I found to be the case and um and then just working with lots of people. Yeah. Which kind of, um, you know, for me, it brings, brings me, we can kind of tour some of the, like what was emerging for me in my adolescent self. Um, and the, the purpose is that kind of mattered to me was one, the intrinsic joy that I tasted daily. Um, And the greatest source of joy was being with my friends. Um, Mm. And unbeknownst to me, um, I just loved connecting with my friends. (laughs) Mm. Um, Yeah, there's schoolwork and athletics and aspirations and you know uh, that are entangled around going to college and (laughs) doing well in school and all those things but those were you know on a scale of one to ten you know I I think embodied movement was uh, for its own sake was probably an eight to 10 academic performance was probably a two, two peaking into three sometimes (laughs) Um, to give you a sense of kind of like what I inherently love to do. Um, Mm. uh, and, And, but as I kind of went into adolescence, like the social dimension of myself really started to flourish. And I was finding myself, what ultimately mattered was how fully I loved my friends. Mm. And just appreciating their companionship. Mm. And it was in this time that, that, uh, 
I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but pretty much all of my friends were enacting very intimate and sincere conversations with me and vice versa. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is kind of what we do with our friends. <laughs> we we mm-hmm. connect around what really matters. Um, but for me, there was like something about, um, you know, who I was with my friends as a group was a little bit different because my friends would then call me up one-on-one or kind of pull me aside at a party or kind of hanging out just the two of us tended to kind of go in these directions of what really was troubling them, what was really um, bothering them, what was really going on. Mm. And, um, and, and so I was in some ways kind of enacting this, you know, this kind of counselor archetype. <laughs> um, and it yeah. continued, you know, when I went went into college, you know, that that it continued to flourish and people were like, oh, I gotta have my McNamara conversation. That's what they would say, you know. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it. It's like, oh yeah, of course. Like we gotta we gotta chat about life and what really matters and how to navigate. And I just had this instinctive, innate um, DNA there that enabled me to um, fulfill a purpose, um, you know, fulfill a call yeah. that if this is my last day, you know, these, these intimate conversations um, of both extending attention and care to people, but also providing the guidance that I felt mattered in the in the face of life and death, and that was like what I was leaving with people. Um, hmm. yeah, anyway, we pause on on myself, as I often say. I can go indefinitely, but. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to see how you were kind of naturally discovering your purpose. Um, For many people, it's not so easy and natural. It's more something that uh, we need to work at. Um, Yeah, and I think that's where it becomes easier and easier the more uh, intimate we are with, with our death and dying. And, and that's yeah. the hard part, you know, like there's, uh, uh, there's nothing easy about uh, that part. Yeah. But it, as the, the, you know, coming to embodiment as kind of your embodied integrity organizes around what ultimately uh, roots you into your aliveness and your significance. Um, it becomes easier and easier to 
to put that into mo motion. Um, the process of getting those roots into what ultimately matters is um, uh, challenging for a lot of people, you know, especially if we're finding those roots via the, the diamond of death that cuts away things that distract us and all the ways that we aren't integrous to what, what and who we are. Hi, sorry for interrupting. I would just like to take a brief moment to share a bit about what I do as a purpose guide. So are you in a place in your life where you would really like to get engaged in something? Maybe there are many alternatives that are pulling you in different directions, but it's really hard to choose one. They all seem relevant and interesting. What you would like is to be able to fully commit to something so that you can be 100% engaged in what you're doing. In a way where you feel that your unique gifts and talents are made good use of. And where you feel that you're making a contribution towards a better world. So my solution to this dilemma would be to help you find your purpose. Because when you have that clarity about why you're here, why you're alive in this time and place, it's so much easier to choose. And when it's easier to choose, it's easier to get engaged in what you're doing without constant doubts about whether what you're doing is the right thing. So how do we do that? How do I help you get clear about your purpose? It's a process that is very much about connecting you to your soul, because your soul, the deepest part of yourself, is the part that knows your purpose. So the whole program, the Purpose Discovery Program, is very much centered around helping you get closer to your soul and to get information from your soul about your purpose and the different aspects of your purpose. We divide purpose into eight different facets, vision, powers, values, essence, giveaway, task, message and delivery system. And through different kinds of practices, you will gradually more and more clarify each of these throughout the process. Towards the end of the process, you're likely to have a very good soul-level understanding about why you're here. If this sounds interesting for you, you can book a free introductory session. It doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time. We'll have a chat and we'll see if the program is the right fit for you and if you and I are a good fit to work on this together. So if you feel called, I really want to encourage you to go to my website and find the contact page and book a free session. Okay, let's get back to the interview. Thanks for listening. So... For you, really, it's been the awareness of death and this ongoing inquiry that it has kind of forced you into that has been your personal um, involuntary purpose discovery process. Or would you say that there are, have been other parts that have been significant for you in that process, in, in clarifying your purpose? Well... 
it, this kind of it's hard to it's hard to say because there's like the counselor archetype um, that has me, um, and mm. then there's also uh, in in kind of my confrontations with life and death, this inquiry of, you know, what ultimately matters and what is wisdom and what is truth and um, what is goodness plugs me into kind of my philosopher archetype and the, <laughs> the one who's in love with wisdom and in search of wisdom that uh, that dimension of myself was also emergent. Uh, and the more I participated with that, that kind of led me into this rabbit hole of uh, studying philosophy and psychology and development and evolution and um, all those things, mm. which kind of starts to um, <laughs> compound the inquiries. Um, so now it's not just death, mm. but it's uh, Plato and <laughs> Heraclitus and Sri Aurobindo and Wilbur. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. And all of them are their own unique ways, kind of carving into the human being with uh, inquiries and assertions about uh, what really matters. Mm. Yeah. But certainly the foundations for me are around death. Um, mm. yeah. And it's an intimate, personal, lived experience that um, can only be felt and known through your being. Um, for me, there's like a tenderizing of the heart um, purpose that is abstract and conceptual um, is usually missing the mark um, in terms of how I measure what really matters. Um, yeah. Um, in my own kind of prop, like experiences of dying and experiences of uh, just grappling with almost dying, um, the abstractions of the mind and the use of language um, they, they disintegrate in the face of uh, the challenges that death reveals to us, or at least certainly to me. Um, and, but the capacity of the heart to penetrate through those turbulent experiences and into um, death itself is quite profound. So... Mm the this like 
very intimate conversation with your heart is one of the ways we can talk about it. But it's not a conversation via language. It's a conversation via felt sense. And, yeah. Um, and, um, and then if you take your cognition, your abstractions, the, for me, my philosophical inquiries, and align them with, with where the heart is truly organized around, where the heart is actually moving towards then, um, we have a more integrated and um, purposeful human being that um, is just more ethically aligned to their, their personal goodness. <laughs> and the great thing about our abstractions and our mind is that we can then also start to see and sense into the ethics of what's good for the people around us um, and make uh, moves that are not just for our own kind of fulfillment for others, you know, and the, the more complexity that we are able to scaffold in any given moment usually will dictate our capacity to extend and contribute to the people around us. And so this is kind of um, one of the ways that we can think about uh, purpose development. Mm. But a lot of uh, a lot of people get lost in language, uh, and I'll get into some prescriptions for people. <clears throat> some practices that uh, I, I'll recommend um, that, that take you in a very different direction, but the purpose development that's organized around language um, is inherently, if that's the organizing synthesis, um, we've got problems in my, in my opinion. Excuse me. Yeah, definitely. Um, in uh, in my work, I talk about listening to the soul, and oh, nice. the soul is kind of the part of us that that knows our purpose. And I am guessing that this is quite closely aligned to when you talk about speaking to the heart, even though I I don't necessarily place soul in the heart, but um yeah maybe you could speak a little bit more about like because yeah what i hear is that you're speaking of finding another source of guidance that is more reliable more trustable than the thinking mind not to devalue the thinking mind but but it just it doesn't have the capacity to lead us to you know, the best outcomes and the best choices in our lives all the time. And it certainly doesn't have the capacity to clarify our purpose in life. So yeah, maybe I think many of our listeners will be interested in um, finding that source of guidance within them or being able to connect more deeply to it. So mm. yeah, if you could speak a little bit more about that, that would be great. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, 
I get super interested that you're um, talking about the soul. And hmm. I'd love to hear kind of how you organize around uh, the topic of the soul. Because I, I think uh, I mean, one of the frames that I've been using a lot is this uh, frame called insolment. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a deepening participation with the reasons for your existence. Um, mm. That's kind of just on the individual soul. Yeah. But I, yeah, I get super curious about. Do you want to share it all, or I can keep riffing too, or if you want to steer me? Uh, sure, I can. No, no, I can share a little bit about that. Um, let's see. So, listening to soul, it's. Um, it's like listening with your whole being. It's like making your whole body and all of yourself into an organ of perception that is open to receiving information that is that often comes in many forms and quite rarely in the forms that we usually deal with information, which is thoughts. But it's more like we make ourselves open to receive visions and images and mm, sensations and mm, and because that's as as I understand it, that's the way soul speaks to us. Um, so that's about listening to the soul. I'm I'm not sure if that answers or what is your question more specific than that. <laughs> Um, no, I, I was just curious to weave with you a little bit there. It's exquisite. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. So the uh, the first frame around kind of listening to your whole being, um, mm-hmm. and I like how you said receiving information. Hmm. And then I think it's quite brilliant in terms of your honing in on visions and images and sensations. And um, like, yeah, there's a lot of richness there. Um, So I think to to begin just listening to whole being, And I don't know if this is, well, this is kind of what happens to my experience when you say that, Polly, is, is um, there's a, mm-hmm. a deepening of attention that opens up and mm-hmm. starts to receive the fuller qualities of my humanity that also I experience kind of reaching out beyond my own. Um, 
Mm. So there's the things that are deeply personal, and then there's, you know, we can use the term transpersonal or transcendent. Um, both of those are evoked when you uh, presence that kind of listening to the whole being, um, which is very different mm. than the thinking, discursive, divided mind. <laughs> At least uh, that's how I receive. No. Receive that. Um, and then I love how you said receiving information. Um, and like quite literally information, like what informs. And I think that that is right at the essence of what the soul is. It's this elemental, basic forming of you at the, at the most fundamental levels. And, um, you know, like the ancient Greeks uh, presupposed that it was prior to your incarnation, prior to you coming into the world, you were imprinted with a calling or a set of callings. And then your life <laughs> would unfold. And often the situation and location and the context of your life were um, constellated in such a way to bring out your calling. So Rob's mm. uh, incarnation with asthma <laughs> was in some mm. way like, you know, uh, there's a lot of pain and suffering there and like, also my greatest teacher in some ways. Um, mm. and, and so like that life condition perhaps was chosen, you know, prior to my life. <laughs> um, and that, yeah. um, so this is kind of where, um, like what it, what is it that, holds the form of our most basic uh, organizations. And um, you honed in on one of the most salient, best answers that I've heard, um, which is its vision. It is it's the structure of image. Um, and so to, just to, again, come back to kind of my own life. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know this <laughs> until I was probably in my mid twenties. Um, and I was mm -hmm. at the time training, uh, clinically <laughs> to be a counselor, you know? Um, and mm -hmm. my sister was like, well, you, you know what Robert means? And I'm like, I hadn't thought of it ever. You know, I was like, no, I don't know what my name means. What does it mean? You know, she's like, she's like, Robbie, like Robert literally means bright counselor. And I was just like, what? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's yeah. super, super weird. But the, mm. the so that image of, of counselor, of bright counselor, for example, 
Like mm. that has me. And whenever yeah. I invoke that position and people enter into that relationship with me, like I'm fully on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like plugged in, <laughs> rooted mm. into my aliveness. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enacting an elemental, um, dimension of myself. And the more I spend learning cycles there, the more I grow in ways that are actually good for Rob and hopefully good for the people that are working. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's the image structure that like, if we just like, let's get curious about Rob's soul, like the, that image structure is there mm. undeniably. Um, I also, which is very different from the warrior. Like I am made up by those image structures. Um, um, you can feel kind of my attack on the human psyche that is organized against, um, against death and dying. Um, mm. And that's where there's a conversation, a what we would call a core conversation between like Rob's warrior dimensions of himself and the counselor dimensions. And there's a, you know, I often see and experience kind of this round table where these elemental foundational dimensions of Rob are in core conversations that are um, commingling into, you know, this life, life purpose expression. And the degree that I can enact uh, these core image structures of the soul um, gives rise to um, well, greater fulfillment and then um, I think more ethical action in the world. Mm. Let me hit pause because that was a bunch. Yeah, no, there were many great points there. Um, I'd actually like to spend a little bit more time with this amazing synchronicity there between your name and your calling. I, uh, it's so hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I actually, in my work, I do encourage my clients to look for these things and to be open for these things, that kind of unbelievable synchronicities or sometimes even smaller synchronicities because they may very well contain important information. And how do you, you know, how do you hold that? like in, in the context of your name, but just also in general, like that way of being touched by life and um, guided in, in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, so this is part of the, um, the image structure that it's not just intrapsychic, it's also... Yeah the world that is illumined to us and the contextual 
immersion that we're in. And um, to give an example, I remember um, <laughs> I'm giggling here. So uh, one of my uh, great losses in life was I think I think it was eleven when I turned eleven. Um, and this is maybe I don't know. maybe a year or so before I'm, I'm to start to really kind of wake up to um, uh, the existential fact of my mortality. Um, but my kind of more youthful self was like very clear. My life path was um, to, well, like, be awesome at gymnastics, <laughs> which I was. Hmm. And, um, and hmm. then it, I was supposed to become a fighter pilot. And then after a fighter pilot, I was supposed to be an astronaut. Um, mm -hmm. And at the, at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, but um, like if you didn't outgrow your asthma, um, <laughs> by 11 or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Like you couldn't become a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know, I had this, oh shit, you know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like the vehicle that I have can't do what I really want to do. And, mm -hmm. um, and of course you can feel for whatever reason, like flying, um, which has a lot to do with um, kind of leaving behind limitations and ascension. Um, and then of course that taken to its extreme, um, leaving the planet. Um, yeah. And I was, uh, so again, kind of the, the basic vehicle of Rob could not do those things. Um, or at least that was the reality that I kind of encountered. Um, but it really put me in this position of like, I'm, you know, I don't know what to do. And in middle school, we had um, uh, shadow days where we, we could shadow. Um, uh, <laughs> we could shadow professionals that we were interested in. So if you, mm. you know, wanted to do so-and-so, you know, like that's what you would do. And I was, I was lost. So, um, and it's harder to shadow an astronaut <laughs> and fighter pilot, but I'd already kind of grappled with like, well, shit, like I can't, can't do it. You know? So I, I just shadowed my dad, mm. um, who at the time was a campus pastor at the University of Illinois. And so I, you know, just spent the day with him and watched his, you know, what he was doing. So the image structure of my life uh, was illumined by like what my father was up to. Like that also was 
um, part of the image structure of my soul in some ways. And a bunch of it didn't matter. Um, but I remember, you know, we're kind of going through his day and it's all fairly mundane. And I'm like, yeah, this isn't for me. You know, I don't really care about getting the bulletins ready for Sunday service. And <laughs> okay. He's, he's writing a sermon. Okay. Like I'm not really interested in that, you know, um, at least at the time. And, uh, and a woman came to see him. And he's like, okay, you know, like we're going to just go talk in the sanctuary. So he's like, you know, come on with. And we walk into the sanctuary and he says, you know, just sit back here. And um, so I kind of sit in the back row and the two of them kind of walk up. Maybe the third or fourth row from the, from the front. And the two of them just sit down next to each other and they're facing the altar and just you know clear as day i just that image of the two of them kind of facing um like the central thing that christianity is organized around like the altar and the cross and mm. but th them having the conversation in facing that like, mm -hmm. I didn't understand all of this at the time, but I remember very clearly, I was like, whatever that is, that's what I want to do. Mm. Yeah. And um, so the, like, when we say counselor, like, that invokes a whole bunch of intrapsychic images and structures that are just in the human psyche. But then that for Rob is not separate from like that moment, seeing my dad and this woman kind of talking intimately about challenges that really matter, you know. So this is um, this is all a long way of saying. Um, sorry for the the length of it, but this is all organized to say that the image structure is also the contextual surround that you are in. And um, if we um, go with the proposition that like the organizing relationships and people and events around you are part of a larger design. Um, like if we take that proposition to heart, then, it, you know, I think we can start to listen to our whole being, uh, not just kind of in our somatic, in our psyche, but also in our world. Uh, that that informs us and yeah and i think that's kind of where in terms of people that sincerely want to develop their purpose to peer into their worlds that that they are illuminating that they are constructing with you know rich 
curiosity, you know, that kind of mm. uh, interest into like listening into the whole thing, you know, and, mm. um, and often, and this is kind of where I think the Western psyche in particular uh, collapses in this attempt to heal and get out of our wounding and our pain and our suffering. And um, some of that's fine and some of that is necessary. Um, and uh, sometimes the wounding, the hobbling, the pain, suffering, that we experience is the, is by design. You know, I mm. I've uh, like suffocating to death is horrific. I can mm. say that <laughs> with certainty um, and first person experience, mm. um, and yet that trauma is uh, fundamental for my capacity to counsel people in the face of like yeah. really hard things and um, mm. and not to just grapple with them but to but to genuinely be liberated and free in our suffering such that we can mm. take how we hurt and not try to get rid of it but actually use how we hurt and how we suffer and how we're limited and how we're broken to uh, enrich what fundamentally matters to us and the world that we want to eliminate. That's also part of the mm. purpose. It's, it's not just a receiving of a calling, but an enacting of a calling that, that does change things. Let me hit. Yeah. Brother. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, I just <laughs> purpose. Purpose is never only about ourselves. Purpose is always connected to how we influence others and, and the world at large. And yeah. Um, I think we need to start wrapping up here. Um, so yeah, in the home stretch here. <laughs> so yeah, you can take a little bit of time here now to share about your offerings and how people can contact you and whatever you'd like to share. Yeah. Um, So uh, I have an advisory and consulting firm called Delta Developmental. And um, so if you're interested in kind of this level of work at the institutional, organizational, governmental level, like that's one of the things that I'm, I'm up to. Um, yeah, so if you if you want to 
get tangled up and play and explore and work with myself and my team. That's kind of Delta developmental is the, is the place to go. And then my website, which is in need of an update, um, is just robmacnamore.com. And you can get a hold of me there. And uh, I'm working on a, a couple of books right now, but I've got a couple out there. Um, I've been entangled in fatherhood the past six years. So um, that's uh, changed my <laughs> ability to write considerably, which now, uh, you know, my father writing, writing his sermon um, uh, didn't connect with me and now it does my writing is very much mm. uh, in that line i think um mm. so i've got a couple of books one is strength to awaken which is on embodiment and strength training and spiritual practice and this idea of like truly cross training um not just for the body but for the whole being to use your language probably um, yeah and then my uh, my first book on kind of developmental psychology is The Elegant Self. And I've been, well, I've been pawing on The Elegant Relationship for about seven years now. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping I'll finish it. In, uh, in, uh, well, I'm hoping it doesn't take me another seven years, but uh, anyway. So those are the things that, that I'm up to. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in particular, like I'm, I have a lot of interest in uh, kind of advising and, uh, leaders because that's a way that we can kind of scale impact. Um, and then I'm working on some educational initiatives that are also kind of entangled in this conversation. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for leaders that are hungry and in positions where they need this kind of support around their larger significant contributions for themselves, um, as well as their communities that they're guiding and leading. And, um, mm. and then educators that are looking to change the basic uh, I'll just in brief say the basic dispositions of how and what we're educating to. So, hmm. yeah. Okay, great. So that's all for this episode. And if anybody who's listening would like to um hear a little bit more of rob you can go to the members area of my website and there's a little bit extra there so yeah thank you so much rob for being on the life purpose podcast it's always a pleasure my friend <laughs> thanks for having me <laughs> yeah thank you for listening to this episode 
We recorded another 15 minutes afterwards, and you can find that on my website. You can sign up for a free membership and get access to all the bonus materials for all the episodes, as well as other resources such as a purpose discovery meditation. Just go to paulisari.com and find the members area in the menu. In the bonus materials for this episode, Rob talks about becoming death, not dying, of course, but how the act of becoming death can help you get closer to your purpose. If you would like to know what he means by that, I recommend that you go to the members area and check out that part of the conversation. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon.